not met you yet. My name is Holly, and I'm the worship and community engagement pastor here at Bethel, and uh, Pastor Jeremy, who is around the building today. Um, uh, he is uh, my husband, and so if you haven't put that together yet, I know uh, many of you may be uh, new or maybe guests here today. And so we are so glad that you are here. Uh, have you ever noticed that sometimes what we think is important in the moment uh, actually isn't all that important? You know, sometimes we get stressed. I mean, this is in the middle of the night when you're worrying about something. You wake up in the morning, you're like, that's not so bad. Like, what, what was I worrying about? I mean... In February 2020, I was planning uh, this very large community event for Easter. And in, in the year prior, in 2019, we had um, over 3,000 people at this event. And uh, that year, in 2019, the event, which was outside and can hold an infinite amount of people, it was pouring rain. It was just a downpour. So we needed to move the event indoors. And I mean, our church was packed and not the good kind of packed, like the very uncomfortable um, type of pack. Like I, you know, when I was younger, I would have dreams of people pouring into the church doors. And I remember sitting there and people were coming, like pouring through the doors of the church. And there was no room in the building for them to be. Like you're shoulder to shoulder with people in every room, in every space. And I was like, oh, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do next year? And so the following year, I was working with our city council to find an indoor location that was big enough for us to hold this event. And we found it. And the city had agreed to allow us to host this event in their brand new state-of-the-art community center that had like a quad gym, like four massive gyms. And there was so much room for the event. Like we would not, we could, we could have thousands of people there. The only issue was that it was new. And because it was a new building, they didn't want people wearing shoes inside. Okay, so, you know, I'm like, like, you know, it seems like, it seems like just a little issue, right? But people don't like to take their shoes off. Like, if you came into church this morning and we said, okay, everyone, take your shoes off in the lobby, how many of you would say, mm, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to keep my shoes off. I'm going to break the rule. And, you know, what are they going to do about it? But you can imagine an event with 3,000 plus pairs of shoes just laying around. Like I have a family of five, and when I come into the door, I don't know, my, my kids walk in the door, they just take their shoes off, and they don't push them to the side, so then I come in, I'm always tripping over like so many shoes. I don't know how five people have so many shoes, but I can just imagine with 3,000 plus people. So I had meetings about shoes. I had meetings with the city about shoes. I had meetings with our staff about shoes. I had meetings with my team. I had emails and text messages. I had staff meetings. What to do with all the shoes? We thought about a shoe check. We thought about a shoe room. We thought about we were just going to buy bags and people could put all their shoes in the bags and then carry the shoes around. And I, I can't even tell you how many hours <laughs> that I have spent in my lifetime talking about shoes. It's, it's crazy. And, and then a massive pandemic came and the whole event was canceled. 
And it never happened. All this talk about shoes, what a waste of time. Something I thought was so important in the moment, suddenly it, it just, poof, it didn't matter at all. And maybe you've spent time stressing and worrying and working towards something, and you look back on it now and you go, that wasn't really that important. And the thing is that I don't want to come to the end of my life and look back and think, hey, you know, I was consumed with things that really were not that important. I think one of the most crucial questions that we need to ask ourselves in our culture, in our life that we're currently living in is, God, show me what is important to you. We hear all the time, our society, we hear it, we see it on t-shirts, we see it on mugs, we see it everywhere. Do what's right for you. Follow your heart. But this kind of living, it ignores the fact that we actually aren't the ones that get to determine what's important. That we aren't the ones that get to determine in life what is right and what is wrong. Only the creator of the universe gets to determine that. And so don't you think that one of the very simplest tactics of the enemy that he has is just to get us consumed, get us distracted with things that actually don't matter, right? We need to understand what is important to God. The culture can't tell you what's important to God. Your feelings and your circumstances cannot tell you what's important to God. Only God, only his word, only his truth, his Holy Spirit can reveal to you and to me today what is really most important. And this is the exact tension that we see uh, with the Pharisees and Jesus in the New Testament. We've been in this sermon series called Summer on the Mount And we have been looking at Jesus' teachings, his sermon on the mount, one of his biggest recorded sermons in scripture. And if you're new to the Bible, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day. On the outward, they looked to be the most spiritual. They looked to be uh, doing it all right on the outward. They looked to be the most righteous. They looked to be the closest to God. But as we read through the New Testament, we actually find out that Jesus' priorities and the Pharisees' priorities were very, very different. Now, to be fair to the Pharisees, um, they had some good things going for them on the surface, right? Like, they were very diligent in striving and working for their salvation, trying to earn it. They just didn't realize that Jesus' priorities were that salvation can't be earned. It's a free gift that you need to accept Jesus and surrender. I mean, they worked very hard to be the first and most important in the kingdom of God. They just didn't realize that Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first, right? See, they really prioritized in an intentional lifestyle that took a lot of sacrifice and effort. They just didn't realize this is not the lifestyle that Jesus was requiring. And so all their efforts were in vain because they didn't ask this very important question. God, show me what's important to you. And so this entire sermon that Jesus preached on the mount, Jesus is trying to get people to consider the deeper things. Not just to have blind faith, but to understand why we believe what we believe. 
and to further understand that our core beliefs, your core beliefs about who Jesus is, actually have a direct correlation to your thoughts and your actions. Jesus wants his followers to be so clear about their needs, the need for our hearts to change and not just our behaviors to change because your beliefs influence your behavior, not the other way around. Your beliefs influence your behavior. And this is why maybe some of you have New Year's resolutions that don't often stick because we need to change our core beliefs in order to change our behavior. This is why if you believe that you deserve a bag of chips at the end of the day, that your diet plan doesn't work out, right? Because you got to change your core beliefs in order to change your behavior. Your motive, your why is so important. And this is what Jesus was trying to get to today. As we look at Matthew 6, we're going to look at verse 1 to 18. If you want to turn in your Bibles or on your phones there, it'll be up on the screens as well. Well, Jesus starts this portion of scripture we're going to look at today with a warning. And so he says this in Matthew 6, verse 1. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Whew, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty strong warning. Watch out. Don't practice your good deeds in front of everyone to be seen by them. And Jesus here, he's not saying to abstain from good deeds. We see all sorts of evidence that Jesus, he had a public ministry. He healed the sick. He cared for children and widows. He prayed public. Jesus had a very public ministry. He did good deeds. And so what is he saying here? He is addressing the motive of our heart behind the good deeds. He's saying don't do it publicly to be admired by others. Jesus is giving us a warning here about the importance of our hearts being congruent with our actions. He's giving us a warning about our character being in line with our core belief. Our core belief about Jesus, it should shape who we are, shouldn't it? It should shape our character. I mean, if we believe and truly believe that Jesus is the King of Kings, if we believe that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things, if we believe that he is the risen Savior who defeated death and hell and the grave so that we could walk in freedom, that core belief should, it ought to affect our character. It should affect our decisions. It should influence who we are, not just in public, but in private. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what being a disciple is, living this congruent life between, uh, between our belief about who Jesus is and the character, the inward, the heart, the stuff that all happens in our thoughts and in our minds and on the inside. He says, I want you to live congruent. And Jesus goes on to give three examples we're going to look at three examples Jesus gives to us today. And so if we continue on in Matthew 6, 2 to 4, we'll look at the first example. And I want you to notice the similarities in between these passages today. Matthew 6, 2. He says, when you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing the trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. 
they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your father, who sees everything, will reward you. So we, 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 let's continue on and read the second example that Jesus gives us right below that, Matthew 6, 5 to 6. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. Do you, are you. Are you recognizing a little bit of a pattern in what Jesus is saying here? And we're going to skip down to Matthew 6, 16 to 18. And I'm going to skip this portion. We did a When You Pray series in January. And you can, if you want to dive deeper into prayer, I encourage you to go back online and, and watch those videos we're going to jump to Matthew 6, 16 to 18, and we're going to read this. When you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, then no one will notice you are fasting. And then your father, who knows what you do in who who knows what you do in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. We notice a few similarities here in this scripture, don't we? Don't we? They're written actually almost identi identically, and I really wish today that we could spend longer. I wish that we could just stay here for hours looking at the scripture together, but I really wish we could dig into these three disciplines because they could each be a sermon on their own. But today I really want to note the similarities and what Jesus is saying here today. The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus says, when, not if is Jesus says, when you give. He says, when you pray and when you fast. He doesn't say, if you give, if you pray, and if you fast. See, he actually was not trying to convince his uh, listeners that, that day of the importance of giving and praying and fasting because he's operating on the assumption that, that everyone who is a follower of God is already doing these things in their life. The Old Testament, these were the most prominent spiritual disciplines. And so he starts, he says, when you give, not if you give. They would have been familiar with Deuteronomy 15, 10, that says, give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless every, you in everything you do. The people that day, they would have known that the nature of God is love. And this was so evident to the Old Testament Jews that they actually saw giving to the poor as one of the primary actions of what would flow from a righteous heart. So, so they knew this. This was not new news. They knew that this is what God had called them to do. But the Pharisees had actually gone beyond the legitimate interpretation of this, and they actually believed this, that almsgiving or giving to the poor delivers from death and will purge sin. They had taken Deuteronomy too far. And they actually believed that if someone gave in secret, in private, that they lost all the benefit of giving. 
And so Jesus brings this incredibly contradictory message here. The people knew that God called them to care for the needy. That was not the issue. Jesus was bringing into question their motive. That's what we see there. And then Jesus says, when you pray, he doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray, they would have been so acquainted with the Old Testament and they would have known, you know, David's writings from Psalm 5.3, listen to my voice in the morning. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. They would have known that Moses was a man of prayer and and, and Daniel was a man of prayer, and Elijah was a man of prayer. The people knew they should pray. So Jesus is not actually necessarily addressing if you pray. He's saying when you pray, and he's addressing their motives. Now, the Pharisees, they love to pray in public, right? They, they love to pray where people could hear their big words and hear how righteous they, they are. And is it wrong to pray in public? No, it's not wrong to play, pray in public. Jesus prayed in public, but is what Jesus is saying here, he's not discouraging public prayer, but he's reminding people of the necessity of private prayer, of secret prayer, of prayer between you and God, an intimate prayer relationship that connects you to the Father. Jesus prayed privately. And Daniel prayed privately, and Elisha prayed privately, and they could be reminded of all the people that went into the secret place and prayed privately, because private prayer connects us intimately to the heart of our Father. It fuels our relationship with God. Jonathan Edwards says this, there's no way that Christians in a private capacity could do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. Jesus was encouraging a secret prayer life before a public prayer life. And then he goes on to say, when you fast, not if you fast. So we see this pattern here. They would have known, his listeners that day would have known about the spiritual discipline of fasting. They would have known Leviticus 23, 27 said, be careful to celebrate the day of atonement on the 10th day of the same month, nine days after the festival of the trumpets. You must observe it observe it as an official day for holy assembly, a day to deny yourself, a day to fast, and to present special gifts to the Lord. The people knew that God required them to fast on the day of atonement. This was not new news to them. And, you know, it's just a discipline where we deny ourselves. We deny ourselves food or, or whatever it is that may be in the way of us and God. Jesus fasted, the disciples fasted, and he calls his followers to fast. So the question here that Jesus is addressing is not about whether or not we do these things. The assumption that Jesus has is that a follower of God, a disciple uh, of Jesus Christ will do these things, will have these disciplines in their life and in their habits and, and, and not just out of ob obligation, but out of a desire to follow Jesus because Jesus is addressing our motive. Are you giving? Are you praying? Are you fasting out of obligation, out of duty? Because it's what's required of you. And he brings this comparison and compares us to the Pharisees. Or he says, are you doing these things because of God and all that he has done and all that he has accomplished for you? Are you doing this out of a love for God? Because being motivated because of Christ and all he has done for you, that brings life, doesn't it? 
But being motivated out of obligation and legalism, it brings, it brings hypocrisy. It brings legalism. It brings frustration. It brings, it, does, it doesn't reap good things. And so the next thing we notice as Jesus is walking us through these scriptures, in all these scenarios, I notice the word hypocrite. He says it so many times. He says, when you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. He says, when you fast, don't make it obvious like the hypocrites. What, what is he? He's bringing this comparison. It's a strong word, and he isn't just saying it to anyone. He's actually specifically addressing the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he's constantly telling us in the next following scriptures to not model our life after the Pharisees. A little later on in Matthew 23, he says this. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. Okay. But then he goes on to say this. But do not follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands. And they never lift a finger to ease the burden. These Pharisees, they tied their righteousness to a set of rules and regulations and laws that were impossible for people to fulfill. They had this public faith, but they lacked the private faith that fueled their intimacy and their relationship with God. Have you, have you heard of a humble brag? You know, when you're like, oh, you know, just little old me doing good things all the time. You know, here I am. And you, maybe you see this on Instagram. Here I am feeding the poor. And here I am taking care of all the children. And here I am, you know. It, it, the Pharisees had such a humble brag. They, they actually did this. They blew trumpets in the streets before they gave to the needy. Hey, everyone, I want to get, get your attention. I have something really important to tell you as I share my bread with someone in need. Right? What a humble brag. They loved to pray only when people could see them and they failed to have a private prayer life. What a humble brag. They loved to just look miserable and like just disheveled and, and terrible when they were fasting to promote themselves. And I do want to clarify this today. Because we don't want to encourage a shame-based culture here. A hypocrite, it's not a person who falls short of their own ideals or sins. You know, we are all in process, right? We look around this room and, and there is no one perfect among us, right? We are, we are all grateful for the grace of God every day. In fact, Jesus says, come boldly to the throne of grace and receive his mercy, but the problem was the Pharisees didn't even realize. They didn't even realize that they, they had things wrong. They didn't even realize that they were not understanding the heart of things. They were in direct conflict with God because they lacked humidity, humility, character, and authenticity of faith. And the Greek word with, which translates hypocrite, it actually means an actor who wears a mask. It was, Jesus was literally telling the crowd, these men are frauds. And, and church, we know when we're putting on masks, right? You know, it's, it's deliberate. We, we know when we're hiding. You know, maybe, maybe nobody else knows. Maybe your spouse doesn't know. Maybe your kids don't know. Maybe your closest friend, but you know when, when you are hiding something. 
And, and, and the thing is, we know that when we're not being authentic, we know that. And God is not looking for perfect followers. He is looking for authentic followers. People who are real with each other. People who, who, uh, who are, understand that we are all a work in progress. And I think that's why God calls us a family of God. Because your family sees the most authentic version of yourself, don't they? Right? You're, you know, just ask, just ask your spouse or your kids. They see the most authentic, and we see the most authentic version of them. You know, we are a family of God. We are a family at Bethel. And it's a healthy, if it's a healthy family, you know, they don't judge you. They love you even with all the stuff you bring. And in this family of God here at Bethel, we show grace to each other, don't we? We are a family so grateful for the grace that God has given us that we will extend that grace to those we meet. I mean, leaving the stuff in our lives, the issues, the sin undealt with, that's not okay. But we recognize we're all a work in progress. We are all in process. And still we see Jesus face to face. We have stuff we need to work out. That's not what Jesus was talking about when he talked to the hypocrites. See, the most important part of a Christian life is the part that only God sees. So he says, don't wear a mask. I see it anyways. Why bother putting on the facade because God sees it all anyways. Wearing a mask actually robs us of the authentic life we can have in Christ because wearing a mask robs you of understanding the incredible grace that God gives. And so Jesus continues on in this comparison. And I believe that he's really comparing what an authentic life of faith looks like Versus a hypocritical life. Jesus brings this comparison between two ways of living. And he really talks in each of these scriptures. He talks about the hypocrite. And he says the hypocritical life, we can see it. We can see the comparison. Craves public approval. Lacks private and personal faith. Craves reputation. You know, your, the outward actions are not congruent with the inward character. And Jesus clearly says, this, there, this equals, there's a reward from people. This kind of lifestyle that craves, people, that craves people's approval, there is a reward. There is an instant gratification that happens, but there is no reward from God. And you can see that lined up in each of these passages that we read. He compares that to an authentic life of faith that seeks God's approval. Has a personal, private, secret faith that, that bubbles out. It bubbles out in public. Who you are inside, it pours out of you. Right? He says that this person, their outward actions are congruent with their inward character. And, and there may be no reward from people. We're not looking for rewards from people. This individual is not looking for the accolades and the approval. 
But there is a reward from the Lord. And the Lord says, I see the difference in your motive even when no one else is seeing this. And so he's addressing this deeper issue. Jesus made such a clear contrast between the authentic life and the hypocritical life. And he starts out with watch out because he knows that we love immediate gratification. He knows that that we love to have our ears tickled. He knows that we love the immediate gratification of being admired and being loved liked and being elevated. So he starts by saying, watch out. Don't do these things publicly to be admired by people. I mean, it feels so good to get noticed, right? You know, we don't have to look far to understand this. You know, the the creators of social media, um, they have made their millions and billions by knowing the power of a dopamine hit that comes through something as simple as a button that you click that says like. Our brain responds to it, and it craves this approval. It feels so good to get noticed. It feels good to have influence. God actually has designed us to want approval, but the desire for approval quickly got twisted and perverted by the enemy when we aim for people's approval and not God's approval. Galatians 1:10 says obviously I'm trying to win the or obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. If we aim for people's approval and not God's appro- approval, scripture is it's clear. We will get a reward. There is a, a good feeling in that, but it's not the reward that God wants to give. People's approval will never be enough because God has made you for so much more. And Jesus goes on further, I believe, to make the comparisons between Jesus' priorities and the, the Pharisees' priorities. And I quickly want to close as we, as we look at this last chunk of scripture. We're going to just compare Matthew 23... Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. To Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking about the character uh, that he wants to see in his authentic followers. And so let's look a little bit closer at this. The first thing I want to look at is, is Jesus highlights, as we compare these two scriptures, elitism versus humility. The things behind the surface, the things in our character, the things that nobody sees. And he says this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 13. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? Listen to this. This is so sad. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourself, and you don't let others in either. And here we see this attitude of elitism, this inside character coming out. The Pharisees saw themselves as gatekeepers to the kingdom of God, and they shut the door so people couldn't enter. And they actually can't think of anything more sad. They don't understand that the grace of God is available to everyone to believe. But we compare this to the attitude and the character that God wants to see in authentic, faithful followers. Matthew 5, 3, and 4 says this. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for them. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The doors are wide open to the kingdom of heaven for those. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comfort. What a comparison Jesus brings here. 
Because authentic character recognizes your need for God's grace and urges you to hold the door for God's grace open to someone else. Wow, what a comparison. The next comparison Jesus gives, or the next one I'm going to talk, you can actually study this. I'm not going to hit all of the comparisons here because we don't have all day. But the second thing I'm going to hit is greedy for gain versus hungering for holiness. Matthew 23, 16 says, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it's binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Jesus knew that these men were not seeking the righteousness of God. They were greedy for personal gain. They worked out many religious systems that permitted them to rob God and others and created loopholes uh, for them to, to build their own personal wealth while still re- maintaining their reputation. The problem is that when you're greedy for gain, you're never satisfied, right? When you, when that inward character isn't dealt with, you are never, ever satisfied. It doesn't matter how much you have. And listen to what Jesus contrasts this to in Matthew 5, authentic character in in the faith of the faithful followers. Matthew 5, 6 says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. Authentic character is not satisfied with temporary gains and rewards that are not eternal. Authentic character hungers for holiness and justice. And the third thing I'm gonna talk about this morning is the corrupt in heart versus the pure in heart. Matthew 23, 25 says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but you are filthy and full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the outside of the dish, and then the inside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's possible to look good on the outward, but be corrupt in your heart, right? It's possible to fool people on the outward, But you can't fool God because he sees past our masks. And he compares this to Matthew 5, 8. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Authentic character desires a pure heart and walks in integrity even when no one else is looking. D.L. Mudi says, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. Character is what God cares about. And the only person that has ever consistently modeled every virtue we could ever name is Jesus Christ. And his offer to help us stands, his offer to help us develop authentic character as you follow him in private He develops this in your life. As you follow him personally, he develops this character in our life. And of course it spills over into our public life. But he's saying, I want to address the motives of your heart. Live out the truth of God in a way that has value far beyond this life. Three times Jesus says, and your father who sees everything will reward you. 
Live out what's most important to God. Now, I understand that it's hard to fix our eyes on a reward we can't see, isn't it? It's so hard. And 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says this. This is actually my life verse. This is my favorite verse. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. See, you can live for the approval of people. You can store up treasures and rewards on earth. You can do that. But what are we giving up for eternity then? See, I'm going to tell you right now, I choose the eternal reward every time. And you want to know why? Well, first of all, because I love Jesus. And secondly, it's wise. It's wise to choose the reward for eternity. I have here this morning, I have a really long rope in here. And it's really long. keeps going. Lots of rope. Lots of rope here today. Oh, it's still coming. Lots of rope, you know. And, you know, this, this rope, I just wanted to bring it to you this morning just so you could see a picture. Because it's wise to think about eternity. This rope, if this rope represents eternity, our minds can't even fathom, right? If we try to wrap our minds around eternity and what that is and how long that is and how big and what's the start and how does it, how does it even work? We can't even, I mean, this, this rope, I wish that I could just have a magic trick up here and just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and it never runs out. But unfortunately my object lesson is flawed, right? But it is, it's so big. We, we have so much to look forward to. And the price that Jesus paid on the cross, it has a lot to do with our eternity, right? But this little red end right here, this is like our time here on earth, right? And really, if we compare it, Everyone in this room knows it's such a small, insig insignificant piece. It's such a, a meaningless piece of this rope. And, and the culture around us, they keep trying to persuade us to live for this moment. They keep trying to persuade us to live for a reward that is right now. They keep trying to think, you know, the repu your reputation, what, what you, the treasures you build, the things that you, you know, the, what people think of you, it matters so much. But it's wise to live with eternity in mind, isn't it, church? Why as believers is it so hard for us to live with this eternal perspective? Why do we get so caught up in here and now that we actually forget that scripture says that life is just like a vapor? Poof, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Why do we spend so much time making sure that the outward, just like the Pharisees, is taken care of and that our reputation, and, and we forget that God is calling us to build the, the character inside. 
We forget that he's calling us to godliness, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but built in a secret prayer, uh, built in a secret place, built between us and God. And that's where he does this deep work. We live for our entertainment. We live for our jobs. We live for our possessions. But we need to pray, God, show me what's important. Just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. So if you haven't received your communion, you could grab one from the table. You can get up and do that. And Jesus modeled this life for us. Jesus modeled what I'm speaking about this morning in such a beautiful way. He had a life that was so focused on pleasing the Father and not the crowd. Jesus modeled a life of virtue and character so perfectly. His character aligned with his core beliefs so perfectly. He modeled a life of delayed gratification, really because he had you in mind, because he wanted to redeem you. Jesus modeled the life of doing the right thing even when it wasn't the easy thing or the most popular thing. He had an eternal perspective. He knew that life was just like this little end. He knew that it wasn't worth living for right here and right now. He was focused on God and the reward of doing what God had called him to do. And in Matthew 26, 39, we see that Jesus had one of the most pivotal moments of prayer. It was really hard for him to do the right thing in this moment. Moments before he went to the cross. It would have been easier for him to just throw in the towel. It would have been easier for him to seek the approval of people. It would have been easier for him to just, you know, in this one moment, not align his core beliefs with his character. But his core beliefs influenced his actions. His character led him to do the right thing and not the easy thing. And in Matthew 26, 39, it says he went a little further and bowed with his face to the ground in a secret prayer place, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. And Jesus prayed this prayer, God, show me what's important. When I'm tempted, show me what's important, not my will, but your will be done. And I'm so thankful for the character of Christ that led him to be obedient to the cross. We are all recipients of this, of this incredible grace and mercy and freedom. We all get the benefits if we put our faith in him of eternal life. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 says this, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. So let's, as we remember who Jesus is, his character, remember him going to the cross for you. Remember him making that hard decision. Let's take this bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Then he broke it into pieces. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup 
is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink together. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have accomplished for us. God, and even in that scripture, you say we're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. We remember that there is an eternity to gain. There's an eternity to gain with you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus, for what you modeled for us as you went to the cross. We praise you, Lord. I'm going to invite you to stand as we just take a 